In 2011, I had the privilege of having a conversation with Sinead O'Connor, and I had thought that I had lost the recording, unfortunately. I was delighted to, to discover I had not. And this was recorded while I was still on air at Chin Radio in uh, Ottawa. And uh, I'm going to share that show with you now. And it includes music and Sinead introduces the um, music. And you will hear reference to the Gaelic Hour, which was the programme that I hosted on Chin 97.9 FM for 11 years. So at various stages, as I say, you will hear reference to the Gaelic Hour. And that was the predecessor to Irish Radio Canada. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I am very, very honoured this morning to be able to bring to you from the other side of the Atlantic on the phone, Sinead O'Connor. And normally I would spend a lot of time introducing my guests, but Sinead O'Connor does not need any introduction. Good morning, Sinead, and welcome. Thank you very much, Austin. How are you? I'm good, and I'm delighted that you can join us here on this, the 27th of March. And uh, as we come to the end, of, well, I, I must say, uh, I don't know how things are in Ireland now, but I remember that used to be end of the tax year. Yes, it is. I think the fifth of fifth of April. I think it is now. Which is why my wife and I got married on the twenty seventh of March. Oh, I don't think it would do you much good now, anyway. Sinead, a long career, and what I'd like to do is let's start at the present and work backwards, and then work forward. Sure. You know, there's a book out there. If I had my life to live over, if you had your life to live over. Where would you start and how would you do things and would things be any different? Well, the only the one I ever do think uh, I regret and when people ask me this question, it's the only thing that ever crossed my mind, but usually I don't say so, is that I wish I had gone around with less clothes on while I could, you know, like when I was younger. I wish that uh, if I had known that I was going to be middle-aged and fat and saggy, I would have gone around with hardly any clothes on when I was younger. <laughs> and what about the decisions you made from a, an early age and how you, uh, given what you know now, if you knew then what you know, know now, would you do things or would things be any different, do you think? There's only, I suppose, one thing that I might have done differently, but I wasn't equipped with the ability to do that, which was that I would like to have not given myself such a hard time for not being what everybody thought I should be. You know, I think I was quite young and I did get quite a kicking and I took that on board and for many years walked around thinking that I was some sort of monstrous person, which is quite depressing and uh, unnecessary. (laughs) So that's the only thing I really regret about any of it, that, um, you know, youth is wasted on the young. Had I been older, I might have realised that actually... I'm I'm okay. You're not okay. You know. Well, would you think the times were different then than they are now? Insofar as um, now, it's probably easier for somebody to find or get help to get validation for who they are. Well, I think it's very difficult for anybody in in the in the fame business uh, to get any kind of real sense from anyone around them of of who they really are, um, unless you're surrounded by your family and that. But I was actually living outside of Ireland and everything for years, so I didn't really know anyone who knew me, you know, before in inverted commas, apart from my son's father, John Reynolds, who I've always worked with, is my producer. So it can be quite hard to get any kind of validation, really, A, if you're famous, because everybody's kissing your arse, and everybody around you, they're all acting like they're your friends, but of course they're on your payroll, and they're going to tell you black is white if that's what they think is going to keep them on your payroll. Plus they've a vested interest in you being what they want you to be because they're making a living out of you, you know, 
they want to make you into a pop star and whatever they think that means. So it's quite hard for them when you don't cooperate, you know. So, um, yeah, I think it's hard to just get validation if you're a, a successful person. People act very strangely around famous people. Doctors, for example, you know, they, they give you anything. They they lose all boundaries. You know, you could go to a doctor and ask for £10 a smack and he'd practically give it to you because you're, you know, Michael Jackson, you know. So then is it difficult for Sinead O'Connor to be Sinead O'Connor? Well, it isn't now, but it certainly, I found it difficult when I was younger. Well, actually, no, I didn't find it difficult to be me, but what I found difficult was that everybody thought me was, you know, a horrible person (laughs) because they wanted me to be, you know, something that I wasn't, you know. But now I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm, I, my father, um, who's one of my greatest heroes, you know, always says to me, you know, over the years when I might have run and gone, you know, oh, I'm a terrible person, I did this, that, the other, I'm so horrible, I'm so this, that, and the other, and he says to me, look, here's the thing, he says, you're living an amazing life, he says, it's just full of life and colour and ups and downs and this, that, and the other, and that's a great life. So that's the way I see it now, do you know what I mean, that's... You know, it's all good, everything about anything to do with my life is great because, as my father says, it's a great, you know, tapestry, if you like. That's the wrong way to put it, but, it, you know, it certainly hasn't been boring that way, you know. And as you, you said, like, when you're surrounded by an awful lot of people who have a vested interest, to have somebody like your father or a few others like that, that you have the trust that what you hear is what our genuine feelings must be difficult enough to kind of separate the the wheat from the chaff. Well, no, but like I said, I was saying earlier, it was hard for me during the years where I wasn't living in Ireland. I was out of Ireland about 16 years from the time I was 17 or 18. And so I was kind of not in regular contact as such with the family, so they wouldn't necessarily be a daily support in your life. They would have been, I've been back in Ireland now for a good 10 years. So now I'm in a stronger position. And plus, I think just with age, you get a bit more comfortable with who you are. You realize that, like, you know, you can't be anything other than who you are, you know, and that it's not your job to please everyone. And, you know, a a thing my sister always says to me is, you know, you're not on the earth to win a popularity contest, which I also say to my daughter. And that sometimes saying yes to yourself means saying no to somebody or something else. And once you have the courage to do that, then that's how you become yourself and not what anyone else thinks you should be you know so yeah my only regret uh, you know if I could go back over anything would be a I would wear a lot less clothes and b I would not have um, kicked the crap out of myself quite so badly. When you talk in those terms as well though reaching inside of yourself to be creative because there is that creative aspect of you um, creativity oftentimes comes from people beating the crap out of themselves well or it comes from you know life having beaten the crap out of them up to a certain point you know i suppose it's different for everybody but certainly i think well look i don't know i I think whatever circumstances i've grown up under i would have been a singer because i'm a born singer in a long line of singers my father's family um but i certainly think when it came to singing and writing there was also an aspect of it for me that was um therapeutic you know and that it was a great survival thing so i don't believe it's the only place creativity comes from but certainly yeah the the, you know painful experiences or whatever uh, things that are hard to find words for are easier to work through with music you know 
I always say, some people ask me to describe certain music, and I always say, look, if you could describe music, you wouldn't actually need it, you know? So music is there to express the stuff that words actually can't express, you know? And sometimes it isn't even about the words that a singer is singing, it's about the sounds the singer is making, you know? When you say in those terms also, like, you had a, not an easy upbringing, not an easy early life, and that would have influenced it, how you created and what you created. Yeah. So... To that end, when you say writing was also therapeutic, um, what would you say then through what would have been the difficult times in your life that the ability to sit down and create was keeping a journal in effect also? Well, yeah, like the way I say it is that up to a certain point, uh, up until the, the album I did called Throw Down Your Arms, all of my records, as far as I was concerned, were the diaries of someone in recovery from the experience of extreme child abuse in Ireland. Um, in the times that I grew up in Ireland, there was no such thing as therapy. There was no such thing as talking about it. I mean, we didn't even have cappuccino in Ireland until 1992. <laughs> you know, what I mean, there was no such thing about of uh, about of you know talking of emotions. In the old days, for example, when my father was a child, it just wasn't done that parents you know told their kids they loved them and snuggled them every day. It doesn't mean that they didn't love them, but it just wasn't in the culture to be you know, overly affectionate or overly emotional or whatever, you know. So then it was uh, Ireland in the 70s, as we have all discovered, you know, was was quite a repressed place, you know, to be fair. And there was a it was a difficult place to experience, uh, well, I'm sure it's difficult anywhere to experience extreme uh, child abuse. So for me, it wasn't, the fact of singing, for example, was some way that I could voice a whole lot of emotions that I wasn't able to voice anywhere else. And that often it wasn't about even the words, it was about just getting to stand in front of a microphone and fucking scream, sorry for swearing. Do you know what I mean? Just go, just make any sound you need to, to get all of this stuff out of you and out of the way of your happiness, you know? And um, I mean, they're a gift in it as well. Like I, I see that whatever happened to me growing up is a great gift, actually. Um, you know that you. The way I see it is that I was, since I was a small child, I dedicated myself to the idea of God or the Holy Spirit, because I found that was something in, present in my life that was a a, a savior to me. Um, and so I figured that this this music that I had inside me and all of these sufferings or whatever were a way that, that God uh, helps you to understand compassion and forgiveness, actually. Um, and so it's a double-edged sword. There are great things about it, but there's also obviously an awful lot of pain that one would carry. And if you're carrying it in a society which has no um, facilities to help you express it healthily, um, you're either going to end up in jail or being an artist. Apparently, that's the actual truth is that um, child abuse survivors apparently become either criminals or artists. <laughs> so, you know, I, I almost went the criminal way, but luckily I went the other way. So. Well, Sinead, this is a good opportunity for us to take a musical break. And, you know, given what you've just said, I want to, to open our musical choice for you with something beautiful. Um, because, you know, the description you just gave of uh, how life and uh, your relationship with a higher power, uh, in effect, put some meaning on it, um, puts that in context. Would you like to give a little bit of background on the, the particular song? Uh, well, the song is from an album that myself and my husband, Steve Cooney, made a couple of years ago. It's called Theology. And I had actually, since I was a child, wanted to make a record which put uh, scriptures to music, but in a way that wasn't, you know, completely uncool, you know. 
and also to make songs that were, you know, literally scripture. But some of the songs on the record are, are some of them is scripture, and then half would be my own ramblings, and then some of the songs are just every line scripture. And so this is one of the songs which was inspired by uh, the book of the prophet Jeremiah, which is an incredible book. And the God character in it comes across as this person who re- is crying all the time over the suffering of what he calls his poor people. And he doesn't mean materially poor, he means the suffering people. Um, you, know, you know, oh, that my eyes were a fountain of tears, that I might cry for my poor people, you know. Um, so it was a very powerful uh, book to me. I'd studied theology for a while with a lovely old priest, and he used to read the books of the prophets, but he would assume the character of God. And he'd be nearly roaring crying when he was reading Jeremiah, you know. So it was very inspiring. Um, so the song is really about... Uh, it was the first song I wrote for the album, which I had been thinking of since I was seven or eight. And so it was a kind of me approaching God to say, okay, I really want to do something really good here, you know, and I want you to actually be with me and help me to do, be true to these, you know, words and feelings and, and let it come up off the page and bring it alive in the same way that the priest was able to bring it off the page and bring it alive for us in the room, you know. You are listening to the Gaelic Hour, and this is Sinead O'Connor singing something beautiful. We'll be back with you in a moment. I want to make something beautiful for you. From you to show you to show you I adore you oh you and your journey towards me which I see and I say, all you push through, mad for you, and because of you, I couldn't thank you in ten thousand years, if I cried ten thousand rivers of tears of you know the soul and you know what makes it go you who give life through blood 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 oh blood blood Something so lovely for you Cause I promise that's what I do for you With the Bible I stole I know you forgave my soul Because such was my need On a chronic Christmas Eve And I think we're agreed that it should have been free And you sighed to me They dressed the wounds My poor people As though they're nothing 
Welcome back. We are honoured indeed to be chatting with Sinead O'Connor this morning. And Sinead was um, in the first segment there. We covered a lot of ground. But what I'd like to talk to you about now, Sinead, is your career and how you got into the music business and uh, the challenges of achieving in the music businesses, in the music business, and then also the uh, difficulties of maintaining a career, uh, particularly for somebody of your caliber coming from Ireland where the market in Ireland is as small as it is and having to go abroad and stuff like that. So if we go back to getting into the music business and how you got into it. Right. Well, what happened was that I grew, as I say earlier, I was born into a family which was full of singers on my father's side, extremely musical. We even have the the one aunt that's never talked about <laughs> who went off in like the 40s to become a kind of a music hall singer in Garters somewhere in London, you know. And uh, so I was born into a very musical family. My mother was also a singer in kind of amateur life operas and they were both crazy about music. My parents said so there was just music constantly. And in fact, my very first memories of being even a baby or of hearing John Lennon, uh, not knowing who it was or what it was even, because when you're a baby, you just experience everything through your ears, really, when you're lying there, you know. And so I remember this disembodied voice and at some point finding out later that it was John Lennon, but it was something amazing about the effect he used to use on his voice and everything, you know, that it sounded quite unearthly, you know. And uh, Johnny Cash, my mother was crazy about, and then musicals everywhere, you know, so Ireland was just full of musicals, as you probably remember yourself. And that was all that was ever on telly as well, musicals, you know, so just music was everywhere. It's a a very musical family and very musical culture, you know. So um, that's where it started, really, from the time I was even, even four and five years of age. I was hearing rhythms and tunes in my head the whole time. So it was something I was always going to head towards, and I always liked singing. Um, I liked, I used to like to do talent shows. Uh, while it would go on, obviously, with the determination to blow everyone else off the stage, which is what I still do. <laughs> so, um, so that was all good, and I discovered you could make a bit of money if you did that, especially if you sang "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina." You'd always win, even if you sang it badly, just because all the old ladies loved it, you know, and you'd get the fiver. So that was good. <clears throat> so then, what happened was that I sang at someone's wedding. I sang that Barbara Streisand song, Evergreen, as she was my big hero, Barbara Streisand. And uh, the, the girl, it was my, my friend that got married, her brother was in the, you know, at the wedding. And he was in a band, an Irish band, that were just coming together called Intua Nua. This would have been around 1982 or, or so. And I was 14. 
and uh, the, he, after the wedding, came around to see me with a demo tape of uh, just a backing track, no no lyrics or melody, uh, of a song they wanted to make into their first single, and asked, would I write some lyrics and melody and stuff for it? So I did that, and then I went around to the studio, uh, Eamon Andrews' studio, which you might remember, mm-hmm. and um, recorded the guide vocal for them, and that was the, from my first experience of being in a studio, the first song I ever wrote. And... Um, as it happened that my husband was the producer of that record. <laughs> so we've known each other for a very long time. But that was my first experience, basically. And once I got into a studio and heard Reverb, for example, and got on the microphone, that was it. I had the bug. And then they had been looking for a singer, and, of course, I really wanted to do it. But I had no sense of my age, and, of course, they did, because they were like, we are not being responsible for you on tour. like. And so, of course, I was devastated. But the song went on to become their first single. They had a singer called Leslie Dowdle. And um, that became their first single. So that was really, I think, my first kind of beginnings in music. And then I joined a band. I left school in the summer after fifth year and joined a band. I put an ad in Hot Press magazine, the music magazine in Ireland, and um, <clears> that I was looking for a band to join. Went around and did a ton of <clears throat> auditions, some great, some terrible, and uh, managed to land a job in this pretty terrible band. Uh, but I loved it, and we just all we did was rehearse, rehearse, rehearse all day, every day for years. And then we'd do gigs like Battle to the Band and stuff like that in Trinity, which we would win, obviously, because we were great, well, you know, mostly. And uh, then that band broke up, and I, uh, a record company in London called Ensign had been to one of our gigs. And they got in contact with me uh, when I think I was 17, almost 18, and asked me to come to London and um, make some demos for them of songs that I had written, you know, the couple of years previously, which I was doing with the band. And I did that and went, went and made the demos of Carl Wallinger from um, Mike Scott's band, The Waterboys. And um, on two of those songs were on my first album, which was uh, the songs were Drink Before the War and Never Get Old. And um, got the record deal, went back to London, got my stuff, went to London in 1985. I think I was 17, almost 18. And uh, that was it. Signed my deal, spent a year in London writing songs, and then a year or so making the record. And um, that was that. And and that then launched you on the world stage. Yeah. So in the course of the career then, you've been around the world numerous times, and... Um, You've attracted attention uh, on every spectrum, but from for some notoriety, but also uh, as a powerful ambassador for music from Ireland. Um, if you look back over the the music and being in the the music business, what would you say was the high point to date? Jeez, well, see, the, geez, I, I always say, you know. I'm someone who has been incredibly uh, blessed in that any dream I ever had musically came true, and even dreams that I had never began dreaming came true, you know, so it would be very hard for me to pick a highlight because, you know, there's all kinds of people I worked with, I'd sang back in vocals for Lou Reed one night in New York, and I like nearly had a panic attack, I was so excited, I um, I met Anita, um, what was her name, that lady, Anita Baker, I met her, I loved, remember she was a singer, um, I'm trying to remember the song, one of the songs she did, uh, Caught Up in the Rapture of You, do you remember that song? Anita uh, Baker loved her, met, met lo- loads of people I worked with, uh, you know, worked with Public Enemy, 
worked with um, all kinds of the Sly and Robbie was a huge high point for me. Um, just really everything. I mean, uh, any work I ever did, particularly with other artists, were great highlights for me. Uh, gigging is a thing I really enjoy. Um, you know, everything, being able to send my kids to school, you know, that was my choice, you know, being able to look after my kids, you know, everything. I, 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 uh, I was just trying to think there was something that I did recently to in Australia, and it was certainly one of the best musical experiences I've ever had, if not the best, was um, we did this gig in Australia. There was a bunch of artists, and we all had to pick seven. It was called Seven Songs to Leave Behind. So... You know, you had to pick, and you had to work with other some of the other artists and everything as well. So you had to pick like a song that you wish you wrote, a song that made you want to be in the music business or be a singer or whatever. You know, a song that you have at your funeral or whatever. You know, so that was fantastic to get to do the songs which were kind of icons to me or big inspirations to me, and to work with the other artists on that. And And Sinead, what songs did you pick? Well, I picked, let me see, my, the song I wish I wrote was uh, Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions song called Fool For You, which is just the most perfect record ever made. Every instrument on it is outrageous, every every note played on it, every, the way the horns are, the way it sang, the lyrics, the drummer in particular is just insane. Um, so so I did that, which of course I butchered compared to their version. And then I did my, my uh, funeral song was... It's the only song I would want played is this Bob Marley song called Ride Natty Vide, which is pretty much about how, you know, there's no thing as death, really. Quite rebellious. And then I did with Michelle and the Chago, and the cello was on. She's lovely, and I hadn't seen her for a few years. So that was great. And we'd, she played on that, and then I did War with her, the other Bob Marley song. And then I did a song off my uh, forthcoming album, and then I did, you had to do a couple of your own as well. And I did Psalm 33 from um, Theology. So, but it was just what I loved was mixing up with all these other artists and doing all these other songs together. But just the thrill of singing the songs that, that just rocked your world. Or, you know, I wish I'd done it before. Kind of. So to me, I think that that's musically my, my biggest highlight. You know? Well, you know, I think, Sinead, this is actually a very appropriate time for us to take another break because, you know, when you talk about doing a gig like that where you were asked to pick stuff from others... Uh, I know while this was a cover version, but literally nothing compares to you is uh, very appropriate for us to go to another musical break. Do you want to give us a little background on that? Well, it's a gorgeous song. It was written by Prince, as we know. Uh, He wrote it originally for a band called The Family, who who recorded it. And uh, the legend has it that Prince didn't think it was a great song. uh, my manager, however, heard it and thought it was a great song and suggested that I should do it, which I did, and the rest is history. This is Sinead O'Connor, and Sinead, nothing compares to you. Thank you.
Welcome back. We've been chatting with Sinead O'Connor. But Sinead O'Connor, while she is known globally and while uh, she is recognized globally, Sinead O'Connor is a mum. And Sinead O'Connor has to get up in the morning and come down and take care of family and look, do the normal things. What's life like for Sinead O'Connor on a regular day, Sinead? Well, I have four children. I have Jake, who will be 24 in July, and he is now living in London, uh, working as a chef. So I don't have to do much minding of him. Obviously, they never keep in touch unless they want money, and <laughs> blah, blah, blah. He'll kill me if he hears this. Um, but he's grand, very happy. So all I have to do is send the old bit of cash now and then he's grand. Um, then I have a daughter called Roisteen. She's 15 or she will be next week. And she's good as gold. She has a nice little boyfriend called Colin. They keep trying to kiss each other, so I have to separate them. And uh, But they're sweet and nice and she's an angel. And then I have another little one called Shane, a little boy who's seven. And another boy called Yeshiva who's four. And um, this guy, you get up in the morning at 7 o'clock, wish he'd never been born because you've got up at 7, <laughs> get loads of coffee into me, I go downstairs to try to talk the children into getting dressed, which of course they, they, they don't want to do, neither do I, <laughs> uh, get everybody fed out the door, same as everybody else really, get them up to school, you know, try to convince Shane to put down the PSP for five minutes. Um, come back home, make the dinner, hopefully, or hopefully I've made enough the day before that I don't have to make it that day, and just potter around, you know, work work phone calls. I'm making a record at the moment as well, you know, just the normal stuff, really, I suppose, that uh, everybody does, you know. If you want to go down to um, Silver Quinn or the, or, or the supermarket, does, can Sinead O'Connor go out, walk down the street and just enjoy the, the prom in Bray or wherever, and be an ordinary person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you know the way it is in Ireland. There's not much, um, you know, people just take you as they find you. They just treat you as one of them. So it's nice because people, uh, you know, they kind of deal with me like a sister or something. You know, they pass you and they go, Harry Schneider, Harry Schneider, whatever. So there's never any badness, you know. It's, everyone's really nice. So the only sometimes pain in the arse part is you can't be rude to anyone in the shop, you know. <laughs> So, like, you go to a shop to buy something and the person behind the counter might be the biggest jerk that ever walked the face of the earth, but you can't say so, <laughs> you know. So, you're de- you're you're deprived some of our ordinary pleasures. Exactly, you know, and you can't be screaming at your child in the supermarket or whatever, you know. But um, but, but otherwise, no, I mean, people are lovely, you know, it's, it's nice. It's not, uh, there's nothing that I mind about and I'm so used to it now. But people leave you alone, like everyone's busy getting on with their own. Stuff, you know. Would you say the Irish are more inclined to leave you on your own? And I'm, I don't mean that to, as I just mean, do, do you think are the Irish more respectful of your privacy as an individual, even though you're famous? I think they're kind of respectful of me because they see me as just an ordinary person because I don't really go on like anything other than an ordinary person, you know. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of get what you attract. Like I always say, you know, there's the famous incident of Madonna going jogging years ago in Hyde Park with tons of bouncers. But that brought more attract, more attention to it. Had she just gone jogging, nobody would have known it was her, you know. So I think our Irish people, uh, we don't have much of a tolerance for that sort of thing, you know. We, we're not really, you know, we're just ordinary, regular, filthy people. Right. Um, and I think that's it, is that I don't really go on like a 
anything other than an ordinary slavish fat mom, which is all I am anyway. I just happen to have this other job, <laughs> you know. So. When you say you have this other job and you're just an ordinary mom on the other side, the other thing that you acknowledge that you're bipolar. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little about that, having the courage to come out with that? Well, it's funny because people always say about being courageous, but I doesn't strike me as being courageous or not courageous because I, I've just never been the people say the same about talking about my own experience growing up but I'm not equipped with the shame gene there is a, a stigma all over the world and certainly in Ireland still about any kind of mental illness or perceived mental illness you know I'm a big campaigner for the idea that I don't I don't think crazy should ever be used as a term of abuse <laughs> you know and in fact, if you thought someone was crazy, you should in fact be more compassionate than you are being if you're using it as a term of abuse. You know? mm-hmm. um, so I don't really have any shame vibe about it or embarrassment. So it wasn't necessarily a courageous thing for me to do. Is just, and why wouldn't I? Do? Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know what to say about it, except that I, um, I don't agree with those who say you shouldn't take the meds. You know? Sinead, you mentioned there you have four kids and you have three of them uh, floating around at the moment and one is over in London. For the future, do you have a comfort level that the world is still a wonderful place for the generations coming behind us or do you have concerns that we've screwed it up? Well, no, I don't have any concerns and the reason I don't is because I am lucky enough to be a mother of four children but in particular the two eldest give me a great uh, confidence where I might have been frightened. I realise the kind of people my two eldest children are and how they represent really uh, all of the people of their age, you know, 15, 24. These are the people who are going to be taking over the country, you know, very shortly. And they didn't grow up in the Ireland that we grew up in, of isms and ists and power struggles and, you know, Catholic guilt and all of these things, you know. Um, so I'm quite confident that they certainly, and I, it must apply outside of Ireland also, but I'm quite confident that the, the young people that are in the world at present are, are very special people. And they have not known the, the rules and regulations and, and rubbish that we've known. And they, what I observe in my own children is that they have an enormous sense of what they are, what they, what way they deserve to be treated. You know, that they know that they deserve to be treated with utmost respect and that, that, you know, they don't take anything less and consequently they give nothing less, you know. And so they they have a great sense of their self-esteem. You know, my daughter, for example, she, 10 times a day, she'll say to me, do you know what, mom, and I'll say what? And she'll go, I'm awesome, you know. Now, I mean, can you imagine any child when we were growing up in Ireland being allowed to say they're awesome, <laughs> yeah. or anyone for that matter. You know, we were all brought up to think, you know, to be a good person, you have to think very badly about yourself. You know, mm-hmm. and as, as we see, that hasn't worked because part of the problem we're in now is that we're a, a race who have been happy to eat the, the crumbs from the table, but haven't in fact realised there is a table. You know, right. we, we dare and dream of anything better because we don't. We we've always thought you know better was good enough we don't realize that better is not the actual table but the crumbs you know so um you know great confidence in the young people of the world actually given the changes that have just happened in ireland and the the problems that ireland has been going through uh, an election has just happened and there is a change in government how do you feel about 
the changes that are happening in Ireland now? Well, I mean, Jesus, there's a joke going around Ireland. You know that show Reeling in the Years? I'm out of touch, Sinead. I'm out of touch. Well, there's, there's been a show. It's actually been around for a good 20 years, this show. It's called Reeling in the Years. And what it does is it takes a particular year and it'll t- talk about political things that were going on in Ireland at the time or social things that were going on, not only in Ireland, but in, mainly in Ireland. And they play kind of what records were in the charts at those times, whether they were Irish or, or international artists. But the joke going around at the moment is that the poor guy who had to do 2010 is having a nervous breakdown, you know, because it was probably one of the most, the biggest years in Irish history. You had the, you had the, the Murphy Report, the whole, uh, you know, sp- spilling out of all the the actual extent of the of the horror that was going on um, in the church. Uh, then you had the horror of what was going on in government. You had the entire society fall to bits, spiritually and also politically. You know, the IMF, this, that and the other. We had our politicians standing in the street lying to us. Uh, and still, they're probably not, in fact. In, in fact, they are not, because I'm very good mates with a, an American political scientist there, who works for the administration is telling me, he told me months ago the IMF were coming and that the government weren't telling anyone that. And um, he says also that it is a lot worse than they're even telling us. And as far as he's concerned, we're going to be in an actual depression before the summer. And that if we default on even one penny of this thing, we're going to have, you know, be looking at food shortages, this, that or the other, you know. So it's been a massive year for us and it's quite good I suppose in a way all the structures have have collapsed there's no moral integrity in the structures which had been our supposed fathers you know the church and the government and in fact I was told to my brother Joseph yesterday as you know he's a writer and he was saying that in fact our biggest uh, what you call it uh, marketable uh, and honourable uh, product at the moment is art, our artists, uh, writers, singers, musicians, poets, painters, whatever, that we, in fact, are the only institution which hasn't been, you know, discredited. Mm-hmm. And that we we are actually, in t- in, to some extent, uh, uh, one of the best ways in which we can, in which the country can be recovered. And not completely, obviously, there's a million other ways, but I think the artists have a, have a, a major role to play now also in the in the future of the country you know we're getting it back on its feet you know indeed well Sinead we've come to the end of our time and I want to thank you we're going to go out with a, a piece you did recently on the Late Late Show the times they are changing and again uh, a nice wrap up to the conversation we just had about how Ireland is at the moment yeah. so do you want to just give a little intro into the times they are changing well I suppose in my mind the song really for me was all about what was going on within the church and how you know to me the biggest event in Irish history or certainly one of the biggest events arguably 100 years from now the kids are going to be studying uh, which to me is the true Catholic emancipation and far more important and large than our um, you know emancipation from England was in fact the, the emancipation of our psyches from the control and possession of the Catholic Church and uh, so to me that's what the song meant and what the song was about that actually you know we don't have to take what what rubbish we've been dished so far throughout all of our lives and that in fact we're loosening ourselves from that bondage, you know, and going on to move into a new Ireland which isn't uh, controlled by 
these things, you know. Sinead O'Connor, thank you very much, Steve, for coming on the Daily Cool. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you. Come gather round people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone If your time to you is worth saving Then you better start swimming Or you'll sink like a stone for the time Keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. And don't speak too soon, for the wind's still in spin. And there's no telling him what his name And the lesson now will be laid into it for the time. Senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't block up the hole. For he who gets hurt will be he who has stole. There's a battle outside and it's raging. And don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. And your old road is rapidly aging. Please get up.